My name is J.W. Oker. I'm an author, and I like to go out and look for weird stuff. I call it oddity. For more than a decade, I've sought out oddities of nature, oddities of art, oddities of culture and history. I believe that within a tank or two of gas, at any point in this country, is some seriously cool oddity, and that we all should go check it out. This is Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. The Natural History Museum in London is a soaring, sprawling cathedral dedicated to worshipping nature. Its elaborate exterior is gargoyled and shimmered with stone pterodactyls and stone wolves, stone saber-toothed tigers and stone fish, and all manner of stone species living, extinct, and never, ever existing. Inside, its crucifixes are whale bones and dinosaur skeletons. The disciples and apostles face relief on its walls monkeys and birds. Its altars are glass-topped exhibit cases and fossilized tree stumps. Its saints, scientists, and explorers, and its halls and wings are filled with awe-inspiring holy relics. This church metaphor is not mine, not mine at all. The idea of a consecrated space for the study and exhibit of the natural world is exactly what Sir Richard Owen, the visionary natural scientist behind the museum, and the man who named dinosaurs, wanted it to be. And I was a mere supplicant in its halls. I was standing in front of the skeleton of a giant turbinaria coral, which looked like a fossilized piece of of food-of-the-gods-sized cauliflower. It was as big as an easy chair and fascinating for half a dozen reasons, but my back was to it. I was facing the main hall, hence hall, where thousands of people streamed by under the skeleton of a blue whale, that hung over them with its bony fins outstretched like the ascending form of Jesus. With me were seven other people. Three were friends of mine, and then there was a mother with a 10-year-old child and two young women. Is this all there is? I wondered to myself, out of the thousands of people I see flooding past, only eight of us wanted to enter the inner sanctum of this nature church, to go behind the scenes into its holy of holies. We were getting special access to some of the most fascinating pieces in the entire museum, Pieces that weren't on display in the museum proper. But we weren't special, and we weren't proper. We'd just booked one of the hourly time slots for the -the behind-the-scenes spirit collection tour, like anybody could have done, but which most apparently didn't for some reason. We arrived 10 minutes before the tour started, so I immediately squeaked off by myself. I happened to be under contract to write a book about cursed objects, and the museum there has a doozy. I hoofed it past the white marble statue of St. Charles Darwin, who was seated on his throne overlooking the chaos, bemused and satisfied. I winged it to the second floor to the mineralogy gallery, ignoring all of the tantalizing taxidermy on the way and checking my phone every 30 seconds to make sure I wasn't missing the start of my tour. Even an infamous cursed jewel wasn't worth missing that tour for. Inside the mineralogy gallery, which hadn't changed much since the 19th century, the room glittered with rocks of all shapes, sizes and hues, all pulled from deep within the earth. But I kept my head down and headed to a small room in the back, called the vault, where the extremely rare stones are displayed, like the cursed Delhi Purple Sapphire. Despite its name, the Delhi Purple Sapphire is an amethyst. The oval stone is over an inch long and under an inch wide, and is set in a plain silver setting. According to the lore, it was stolen from a temple in India in 1857, from the eye socket of an idol, no doubt, and brought to England where it caused owner after owner ill health and financial ruin and death until ending up at the Natural History Museum. 
I circuited the small vault three times before I realized why I couldn't find the gym. There, between the yellow Hope Crystal Barrel, named for a previous owner who also owned the most infamous cursed gym in the world, the Hope Diamond, and the orange Imperial Topaz of Brazil was a small white card that read, This specimen has been removed for photography and will be returned shortly. 75 years in the collection of the Natural History Museum of London, and I'd chosen the exact wrong second to see this cursed gem. I would have been bummed ordinarily, but it really only meant, in this case, that I'd killed the appropriate amount of time before the tour of the real treasures that I was there to see. I made it back to the Turbinaria Coral with two minutes to spare. I don't remember the tour guide's name, just his accent. I'm going to give him the very British name of Clive. Clive led us, Moses through the Red Sea, into the crowd until we ended up at the doors of the Darwin Center. The Darwin Center is an eight-story Mothra cocoon. Again, the metaphor is not mine. That's its nickname, the cocoon. The cocoon is a tall, white, ovoid building within a building that holds millions of specimens on public display, as well as various laboratories where scientists themselves become exhibits as they do their microscope thing in full view of visitors. But we weren't going into the cocoon. We were going around it, behind it, behind that scene. Clive led us down a hallway lined with offices that were small and messy and empty of people. He explained their purposes as we walked past. One was used for sample testing, another to deflesh skeletons. He pointed to a live feed on a monitor that showed the inside of what looked like a chest freezer, except instead of chilling Eggo waffles, it held a dead baby crocodile half buried in black dermestid beetles that were consuming it down to the gleaming clean bone. Any other time, this would have been a highlight for me, but I barely glanced at the screen. In fact, I would have started to get impatient at this point had not all my emotional receptors been completely distracted with burgeoning anticipation, as I'm sure are yours at this point. And I'll get to the point here now. From there, Clive took us through an airlock of sorts to rows and rows of boring gray lockers. They were large and set extremely close together. He showed us down one row where some of the lockers were open, their contents protected behind glass panels. On the shelves were specimens in glass tubes full of brown water. Bats, whale fetuses, less identifiable things. Clive pointed at a hairy rodent-like creature smashed in a glass tube of amber liquid and mentioned that it was the oldest example of preservation in the entire museum. I started taking pictures of the smooshed thing, trying to find a way to lessen the glare on the curved glass tube while simultaneously blocking the reflection on the flat pane of glass in front of it. I got so involved that I didn't realize that the group had moved on to the next room. Hey man, one of my friends whisper shouted to me, pulling me away from the dead mammal. He's in here. I walked into that large room like the children entering Willy Wonka's chocolate room, or Sam Neill jumping out of the Jeep to behold the Valley of Dinosaurs, or Ed Harris floating above the ocean alien world ship. The room was full of stainless steel. Stainless steel shelves, stainless steel counters, also glass, large tanks, and specimen tubes. But most of the specimen tubes weren't small bottles of tiny rodents and lizards. They were giant tubes and full of every animal. Sharks and platypuses and anacondas and porcupines, even a coelacanth. In fact, Clive pointed to a pair of scales in a box and told us that they were from the original coelacanth that had proved the species wasn't extinct after all, which is what we thought for a long time. Some of the tubes had multiple specimens of a single species, kind of like those tubes of plastic animals that you can buy at the dollar store. Some of the tubes just had decapitated heads for the animals that couldn't fit even into these giant tubes, and a few weren't submerged in liquid at all. 
For instance, a pair of rectangular glass tanks sitting atop each other like bunk beds held a large Komodo dragon on the bottom and a giant Chinese salamander on the top. But none of that, none of that is what pulled my eyeballs out of my sockets and wobbled my knees. That he, my friend had mentioned, wasn't Clive. That's not who he was referring to. That he was right in the middle of the room in its own special tank. That tank was 30 feet long and four or five feet wide, like a coffin stretched to infinity. Its transparent walls were made of inches thick acrylic, and it sat on a centipede's worth of thick metal legs to bear its massive weight. Inside, the tank was full of a yellowish, foggy liquid and the carcass of a giant squid. This frickin' kraken almost filled up the entire tank. It was tentacle to tail more than 28 feet long, a fleshy beige monster that was only slightly less terrifying dead than it would have been alive. And this godlike terror of the deep was named Archie. Archie is a shortening of his scientific name, Architeuthis dukes. Archie was caught in March 2004 at the bottom of the world, right off the Falkland Islands near the tip of South America. He was found dead in a fisherman's net and immediately frozen for posterity. Or cash. I don't know how the Natural History Museum got him. Giant squids are one of the top three reasons to love and fear this planet. They live in the deep ocean. Archie was caught at a depth of 720 feet, and they are extremely mysterious. We only got our first photo of a living giant squid in 2004, a few months after Archie's carcass was found. Today, we think the largest giant squids grow to 43 feet long, slightly shorter than the much heavier colossal squids. That's right, there are colossal squids out in that ocean as well. One of Archie's tentacles was pressed against the side of the tank, revealing large, toothy suckers, and a circular dark spot on its trunk looked like an eye, but was actually its siphon. Its eyes had rotted away. I was in complete awe, even though it wasn't even my first preserved giant squid encounter. That would have been about nine years back at the Sant Ocean Hall at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. However, that specimen, even though of comparable length, was in a giant modern hall full of exhibits and packed with visitors. Archie was a personal encounter, a small group and a large squid. The reason for the quality of the experience is its preservation tank. The thing is just too heavy for the ancient floors of the main museum. In fact, to even make the tank, they had to consult the engineers used by Damien Hurst, that artist who throws entire zebras and cows and sharks into giant tanks of formaldehyde for his projects. Otis readers might know Hurst for his diamond-studded skull that I visited and wrote about a few years back. Had I my way, I would have grabbed a pillow and laid on top of that tank for hours, gazing down through the impossibly clear acrylic until my gazers malfunctioned and I was lost forever in a maze of amazement. However, Archie wasn't the only mind-boggling biological treasure I was there to see. The other, or others, were in a utilitarian glass and metal shelving unit that would have been right at home in an 8th grade biology classroom. Archie's tentacles were pointing directly at the shelf, all eight of them, the way we'd point with five fingers as children so that three wouldn't be pointing back at us. And if anything in that museum should be pointed at by an ocean behemoth, it was these specimens. They were the only things in that entire room that could dwarf the monster that is Archie. On that shelving unit were about two dozen small ocean specimens, fish and octopuses and eels shoved headfirst into tubes or dried out and free of containers. All of them had yellowing parchment labels covered in an old-fashioned spidery scrawl with numbers and scientific names 
and the word Beagle. Beagle wasn't a label of the contents, but a reference to the HMS Beagle, the ship that took a young natural scientist named Charles Darwin around the world and changed the world. These specimens had been bottled by the father of evolution himself. And these creatures that we were looking at with our own eyeballs and our own phone lenses were a catalyst for that scientific revolution that he caused. And they were right in front of us. I'd actually been in this room before, in my mind, when I read China Mieville's brilliant 2011 novel, The Kraken. The story starts and ends in this very room. And the catalyst for the whole book is Archie, the giant squid, disappearing into thin air. It's an amazing book, one of the more imaginative that I've ever read and completely lives up to that premise of a disappearing giant squid. Also, Clive told us that Tom Cruise filmed a scene from the 2017 movie The Mummy in that very room, and that you could see Archie's tank in the background. This was one of the most amazing rooms I have ever been inside. And you don't have to be Tom Cruise or the ghost of Charles Darwin to enter it. You just need to book a slot for the Spirit Collection tour on the website. It only costs 15 pounds, and entry to the museum itself free. When we exited back into the museum proper, closing time wasn't for another hour, so we languidly walked through its dinosaur gallery, which is an amazing gallery. The specimens, the animatronics, the overall atmosphere, extremely impressive, but it did nothing for me at that moment. My sense of wonder had been absolutely exhausted. All right, that's my oddity visit for this episode. This is a little bit of a special one because I've never told this story before. It happened just a few months ago, earlier this year. I've never written about it. And because of that, what I've done is release simultaneously with this podcast a two-part article about my visit on oddthingsiveseen.com. And in that article are lots of photos of my experience. So what I'll do is I'll post a link in the show notes to that article. And I'll also post a link to the Spirit Collection tour page for the Natural History Museum because I really do think that everybody should go do this tour. And in fact, I think that so passionately that if you only have an hour, I would skip the rest of the museum and just go see Darwin, Stuff, and Archie. So come back next week. I have no idea what oddity I will tell you about. It will definitely be domestic this time. In the meantime, drop some stars on iTunes, subscribe, tell your friends, go check out my books. Uh, One of these times I'm going to go deeper into these books that I'm also selling to you. But I hope you enjoyed this story. It is absolutely one of my favorite experiences in a decade plus of chasing down oddities. This has been Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast.